Welcome back to Records and Riffs, the Lost Episodes, a series within a series on a podcast, if you will. Um, this is one of those episodes wherein uh, it's been in a dusty bin, if you will, for a few years and has been taken out, chopped up, edited a little bit, prettied up, and is now finally being put into the feed. And this particular episode is a unique one. And before we get to the actual conversation, I'm going to need a few minutes to set up and frame what this Bob Dylan episode is about, how it came to be, and what this episode not just means to me, but means to a lot of people. The guest on this episode is Chris Chase. And Chris Chase, the late, great Chris Chase, um was a humongous Bob Dylan fan. He tragically died way, way, I'm talking six decades too soon, in December of 2018 uh, from health issues. And this episode was actually recorded on May 12th, 2016. I'm recording the intro, and I'll have something at the end of the episode as well, on May 12th, 2020, and that is not intentional. You know, Chris had been on my mind as of late because those who listen to this, many of you realize that my primary gig is covering college basketball for CBS. And Wake Forest went through a much later than usual coaching change here in the year 2020. And because of that, Chris had actually been on my mind a couple of weeks ago because he was a Wake Forest alum. We messaged uh, relatively frequently about his Demon Deacons and his frustrations therein and was a passionate Wake Forest fan, an informed Wake Forest fan, and even the couple of times we got a chance to meet in person, it was always a joy to get to see him and talk hoops. And so he had been on my mind as of late because of all this, and I knew I'd had this conversation uh, stored away on my computer, and now we are dealing with a pandemic, and I'm getting around to finally uploading some more episodes, and... So I decide to put this together. To, uh, I had to make a few edits here and there. And as I'm doing that, I go back and I check over the file that I imported and had chills run up and down my arms when I realized, through no intention of my own, um, that I had, I had chosen four years to the day that we spoke about Bob Dylan to put together this episode. So uh, I'm thrilled to finally get to do it. I apologize for waiting way too long. Chris Chase was probably, you'll notice in other episodes in this in this podcast, I'll have brought on uh, certain media people to talk about an artist or a band that they're very, very in tune with, knowledgeable on, fans of. I don't think that I will ever be able to bring on someone who was more of a fan of a given artist than Chris Chase was with Bob Dylan. He was the only choice when uh, when we recorded this. We were coming up on the 50-year anniversary uh, of Blonde on Blonde, and, and you'll hear him talk about that and rank the Dylan records and all of that stuff. Um, you'll hear that his favorite song is Mississippi, which is a relatively new song. It's even interesting, as I, as, as I put this out into the world, um, Little Richard died only a few days ago, and, and sure enough, I asked Chris about Dylan's influences, and of course, he mentions uh, Little Richard in, in multiple instances and he's also not afraid to uh, to be critical of Dylan where it's needed. And you'll just learn a ton. Whether you love Bob Dylan, you love Chris Chase, interested about Bob Dylan, whatever, there's, there's a lot that you will certainly uh, take away from this conversation. And I can give no more praise and more of a testament to um, 
Chase's fandom uh, of of Robert Zimmerman than the fact that in the years since we had this conversation, I can unequivocally say I am a bigger Bob Dylan fan now, easily, I mean easily, than when we had this first conversation, and he definitely played uh, an influence on me uh, with all of that. Um, we're talking about a guy who... He says on the podcast, I mean, 5,500 Dylan songs in his iTunes inventory. And obviously, that's so many of that's live cuts in addition to B-sides and, and studio recordings and all of that. So it was a real pleasure to walk back in time and and get a chance to rediscover this conversation that I had with Chris. And I hope you enjoyed as well. I'll have a little bit of a postscript at the end of this episode as well. Just a thought on Chris and his friends and his family, uh, but that's at the end of a of a worthy episode and uh, and one that I hope that you will all enjoy. Whether you came here because of Chris, you're a subscriber to the feed, or you love Bob Dylan and somehow, some way, you found this episode, you will not be disappointed in the knowledge, intellect, and passion of Chris Chase. Here it is. All right, we're going to talk about Robert Allen Zimmerman on this episode of the Records and Riffs podcast. Bob Dylan, of course, and why not? You know, I'm actually not a huge Dylan fan. I've got a few records, so I'm bringing on Chris Chase of Fox Sports. He's the biggest Dylan fan I know in the sports media. He is super, super well-versed, and within this podcast, we're going to we'll have it be a primer-like episode, so anyone that's not totally familiar with Dylan, you could only name, you know, like a Rolling Stone Um we're going to give you some surface stuff that you can get into. And then for the diehards that, you know, have God knows how many bootlegs and know so much about it, have read 50 books on Dylan, we'll get into that stuff as well. Chris, thanks for coming on, man. How are you doing? My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. And uh, no Dylan fandom for shame. You're it, such a music guy. I, I figured you'd be uh, you'd be all up in, Bob. But well, uh, No, I am. I like I am to a certain extent. So, like, I've I've got... I don't know. I've got. I'm trying to think which. Like for example, Blonde on Blonde, just has never clicked for me. Now I know I have the album, but it's never done. Like I've got Freewheeling, I've got Bring It All Back Home, I've got High, Highway 61, and I've got Blood on the Tracks, and I think that might be it. Um, I think that might be it. I don't. I know I've. I listened to Love and Theft a few times back in the day. I don't think I own that anymore. Um, and I listened to. Uh, what was the one that came out last year? Shadows in the Night. I listened yeah. to that and thought that was pretty solid. But you know, but by no means I, I can't say that I'm a Bob Dylan adorer, but I certainly appreciate a lot of his music. And uh, there's certain like the stuff that I like, I really really like. But um, but let's just let's launch from here. So when did you get into Dylan and why? What is it about his music particular, particularly that that you love so much? Because he is, you know, if you could only Desert Island one artist forever, he would be at the top of your list. Oh, I'd probably, if you gave me 10 albums, it'd probably be 8 Dylan, maybe yeah. the Fuji's the score, and then something else, you know, maybe some Phil Spector. But other than that, I mean, it's it's all Dylan for me. I got into him in high school and actually got into him in, in the cliched way. It was the same way, you know, everyone in the 60s got into him, the same way Bruce Springsteen got into him. It was that snare shot off Like a Rolling Stone. I heard it on the radio. Uh, you know, I don't know about where, where you were, but uh, radio around here in the D.C. area, my parents listened to, you know, the 70s and 80s station, which was 
was relatively newer music. And they played, you know, they didn't play like the rock songs of the 60s. They played the Gordon Lightfoot and they played the, you know, the Shirelles and the Supreme. So there wasn't much Dylan around my house, even though my dad owned a few of the albums. But when I first heard Like a Rolling Stone on an oldie station, I said, well, I got to get into Dylan. So I bought The Greatest Hits, which is a great way in. And from there sort of expanded, um, you know, I went to his my first concert of his back in 96 when I was, I think, a freshman in high school and have yeah. been to 20, I think 28 now, but somewhere around there. And uh, I, I think the reason I'm so drawn to Dylan, it's both musically and uh, sort of uh, intellectually, if you will, not to sound like a, a D-bag, but, you know, uh, there's so much to Dylan, you have so many different eras and so many different uh, points of his career that have just wildly diverged. He zigs when you think he's going to zag. He zags when you think he's going to zig. And he's done it all his life. And, you know, uh, whereas now you have the Rolling Stones releasing albums basically as a jumping off point to tour. And you have Paul McCartney who doesn't really, I mean, you know, his last album I listened to was, it was all right, but it, it wasn't anything, you know, it was not the Paul McCartney of the sixties or even the Paul McCartney sure. of wings. Uh, Dylan is still doing new things and he's still uh, writing masterpieces. And frankly, you know, uh, I think we'll, we're going to do a list of albums later. I think, you know, you'll be surprised how many albums in the past 15 years I have ranked highly just because because, uh, and you know, it's so different from what he did in the 60s. And you can seriously listen for a week and, you know, have a different theme every day. So when I work during the day, uh, I have a Dylan, you know, album playing, I would say, every single day, maybe one, maybe two, maybe three. And, uh, you know, you kind of get into phases and you listen to one. Uh, you don't listen to Blonde on Blonde for a while. And you, uh, you know, you kind of get into infidels and, you know, it goes on and on. And uh, it's sort of like when you watch Seinfeld, how, okay. you know, I, I, I want to watch, I'll watch Seinfeld, you know, on repeat for six months. And then I need to take a break because sure. I don't want to, I don't want to over Seinfeld myself. So I do the same with my favorites, Blonde on Blonde and, and the various others because, because, uh, you know, and and the beauty Dylan is you can do that. He has over 40 studio albums and he's got all these bootlegs and he has so many live recordings. I think I checked on my iTunes today. I think I have was something like 5,500 Dylan songs. Um, so, yeah, it's it was two and a half days worth. So if I were on Desert Island, I think I'd have, uh, you know, something to do. OK, um, there's so many different directions we can go. Um I'll I'll start with a little bit of pessimism, I guess, and that's. Do you think it's his voice? Like for me, I didn't ever. I've never had any issue with his voice. In fact, I think it benefits him in his legacy that it's it's distinct, uh, and it's something that obviously people can ape and they can mimic or they could even parody because just because there's not really been anyone that's had a voice uh, much like him. But do you think that's the one thing? Like he's obviously considered one of the best. Uh, musicians in the history of the world. I'm not overstating that. It's specifically within the past 100 years. I mean, his his collected works are 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 in and will be uh, in museums across the country, across the world. I think the White House. Uh, I don't know if I'm ringing a bell here for you or not, but I think like that's one of like the most prominent books in in the White House Library or something like that is just the collected lyrics of Bob Dylan. So he is tremendously influential, but I feel like he is not reached 
um, a certain level of, of mainstream popularity over the past 50 years, and I'm using that comparatively to say the way the Beatles did, just because I think, I wonder if his voice and the tonality of it w might be the, the one thing that kind of launched him to absolute superstardom. Maybe I'm off, Chris. I mean, maybe it's just because he obviously had stages where he really shunned the, the, the spotlight anyway, and maybe it's a credit to him and the quality of his songwriting that he actually be, he was still that famous and that revered because of that. Well, first of all, you're absolutely right about the fact that he didn't really have as much mainstream success as you would expect for someone who's really very famous. I mean, even if you don't listen to Dylan, you know of Bob Dylan and you know what songs he has. But his first number one album was uh, not till 2012 when people weren't buying albums anymore and all it's these old fogies. Sound. It's unbelievable. And he had maybe, uh, I, you know, don't call me three platinum albums, I think. And uh, they were mostly in the 70s and 80s, uh, some of the 80s output that wasn't very good sold because that's when people started buying tapes and CDs and all that. So you're right. There wasn't much mainstream uh, success for him, but there was a lot in touring. And I think the voice is definitely the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room. It's anytime I tell someone I'm into Dylan, I almost invariably hear about the voice. If I tell somebody that, you know, let's just say it's a it's a Tuesday and I'm going to a Dylan show on Wednesday, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to see Bob Dylan Wednesday night. They say with his voice and they say it derisively, like how can you sit there and stand it? And it's a very real, uh, you know, it's not a concern to me, but it's certainly something that uh, is probably off-putting toward people. Uh, when he was... The first five years from 1961 to 66, you could make the argument that, that the voice sort of uh, was befitting of what he was singing about, the protests, the uh, you know, sort of the way he was trying to – people thought he was trying to become the voice of his generation, and, and by doing that, he literally had the voice to do that. Now, he actually didn't want to be the voice of his generation, which is a whole different topic, but uh, you know, the voice was distinctive enough, I think, to set him apart from the people who were coming up in the early 60s. Then when he went electric, uh, you know, the voice in Like a Rolling Stone and, and on Bringing It All Back Home and those albums, it really does fit that thin, wild, mercury sound that, you know, has been termed, uh, you know, with that mid-60s music when Dylan was on speed and amphetamines and God knows what else. Uh, th you know, that phrase, thin, wild, mercury, really kind of captures it, even though it means nothing. Mm -hmm. But when you listen to these frenetic songs and, the, and these visionary lyrics that don't make any sense, you know, ghosts of electricity and, you know, the Mona Lisa smiling and, uh, you know, all these things that, you know, these Shakespeare illusions, these illusions to the Bible, to Rimba, to uh, to Nietzsche, to pretty much, you know, anyone who's any famous writer or philosopher, you can probably find the Dylan uh, in line somewhere that that he's mentioned them. And uh, I, I think that the the voice then was as much of an issue. Then he famously changes his voice after 1967, he releases Blonde on Blonde, and the Beatles release Sgt. Pepper, and everybody is sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. What's Dylan going to do? How is he going to top Sgt. Pepper? And he comes out with this country album in which he sounds like Kermit the Frog almost. And, you know, I, I remember watching The Big Lebowski when it came out, and a buddy of mine on the way out said, oh, that song was great. Who was it? So that, that was Bob Dylan. He's like, no, it wasn't Bob Dylan. It doesn't sound anything like him. And you're right. The man in me doesn't sound 
sound anything like Dylan, but, uh, you know, that was what he did. He said he quit smoking and that's why he had the voice, but he was definitely, you know, using it as an affectation to kind of show that he was changed. Now the voice is ragged. It's the voice of a 75-year-old man. It's the voice of a 75-year-old man who was never particularly tonally great at singing. He was no Paul McCartney, who still sounds phenomenal today at the around the same age. Uh, and it, it is definitely a turnoff. If you were to go to a Dylan show today and, you know, you know the 60s music, you know a little bit of maybe Blood on the Tracks. If you heard him today, it is certainly off-putting uh, but I think the fans get past it because you're hearing when you go to see a show now new arrangements of songs that are 40 years old in some cases getting to be 50 years old and just the, the, the presence of the man is enough to kind of make up for it but it certainly is a tough uh, you know entrance way for the non-fan because that's the first thing you hear when you listen to music is is the voice and it doesn't matter who it is whether you're listening to to tom york on on the newer radiohead album whether you're listening to some you know crappy pop album the first thing you hear invariably is the music and you say this person can't sing and if you say that about bob dylan i can't argue with you but if you listen to him enough, you realize that what he is doing is so far different. He's singing. He's you know not rapping in the way we think about rapping today. But back in the 60s, he almost was rapping. He was a beat poet. He was doing all these different things. A lot of what I, I've heard, I haven't seen Hamilton because who has seen Hamilton? <laughs> uh, but you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, is what Dylan was doing in the 60s. Desolation Row sounds a lot like one of the Hamilton songs I saw on the Tonys or the Grammys or whatnot. So he does it all, and the voice certainly. It hinders his ability to, to kind of find radio play for stuff he's doing now. Uh, not that radio would play the 75-year-old man singing standards, but it really does work. And the new album that you talked about, Shadows in the Night, which the follow-up is now out, Fallen Angels, and uh, it's basically Sinatra standards and uh, just songs Sinatra did, not it's not a Sinatra cover album. It's basically going into the great American songbook and finding the songs that, that, uh, you know, he wants to bring back. He wants to keep alive. He's very big into music history and, and, uh, the old, he, he's so eclectic in what he likes. Uh, he admits to liking all these cheesy songs of the sixties. He talked about, how his granddaughter got him into Britney Spears. Now I'm sure he wasn't spinning around listening to Oops I Did It Again, but he's, you know, he's pretty much up on what's going on in music and can probably is probably, you know, one of the world's foremost experts on 1920s to 1950s blues and starter rock and roll and all that. And uh, and so the way he uses that voice on this new on these new albums on these last two, it's really sort of startling and affecting and haunting to listen to the way he sings a song that Sinatra did 70 years ago. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend listening to those two albums, if only previewing them on iTunes or getting them on Spotify, because the voice is what makes those albums what they are. And it's it's an imperfect instrument, but for him it works. Real quick on the Dylan Goes Electric phenomenon of 66 at the Newport Folk Festival. 
Um, for those that are maybe even just faintly aware of, of hearing that, you know, it's one of the more famous uh, incidents, if you want to even call it that, in the history of popular American music. I wonder if that is overstated, understated, if people even realize what the gravity was behind it, if maybe in the moment people overreacted, and obviously the basis of this was Dylan had gained popularity in the early 60s, this was pre-Vietnam, um, and at the time when, you know, even when the Beatles were breaking big uh, here in America, you know, they were they were so different than what they've become, but Dylan had, you know, obviously a, a very hardcore following, um, maybe you could even say I wrote. I watched this documentary on the band, who the band who was Dylan's backing band before they became the band. Um, I remember watching a documentary on that, and uh, and Dylan wanting to just seclude himself because he had, you know, he just had freakish followers. The way that even like Lennon would get later in his life. Um, but was him going electric? What was the impetus behind that? And have you felt that maybe? that was overstated just a little bit because it was simply a man putting down one guitar and picking up another or was it and did it signify signify something else chris uh it, it's a metaphor for the 60s it's the same way the summer of love uh, you know didn't mean much to the world at the time but it represents in culture how the eisenhower days and the days of of kennedy and camelot you know, meshed into the free love of the 60s and then into the, you know, sort of malaise of the 70s. It's a turning point that I think has now been overused and has become sort of cliche. And the story behind it, I mean, because most of these things, they take on their own mythology and the Dylan going electric uh, absolutely has. It was actually in 65. It was July of 65. And at that point, Dylan has... And when I say so over the course of this, when I say Dylan has said, you take it with a grain of salt because he has stories for everything. He is a liar is the wrong word. He is a stretcher of the truth. And he does it <laughs> because I don't think he wants to let people know exactly what he's thinking. So he has said of, of going electric, he did not like the path he was going down. And you can see that with the, with the changes in his music. He did not want to be the voice of his generation. He did not want to be known as a protest singer. He didn't want to be doing the fall stuff anymore so he was very into the the chuck berry uh the 1950s rock and roll music he insists rock and roll died by the way in 1959 uh he says what he and the beatles were doing was something different so he gets up on stage and it's this folk festival pete Seeger is there the famous folk musician and dylan comes out with uh with the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, who had the sound he had only heard about two months before. They hadn't rehearsed much. He comes out. They had done a really sort of lazy sound check. So he comes out and he straps on his electric guitar. And the noise, because the you know the amps and everything were set for the, these acoustic guitars, mm. just blew everyone away, not uh, metaphorically, literally, it was just a bad sounding show and you can hear it if you listen to it. So the booing that came wasn't because Dylan had, was, you know, losing a generation. Now, maybe some people there were booing. The booing was, was because it sounded like crap and all the all the backstage stories of Phil Ox, uh, you know, and all these guys backstage yelling at Dylan and telling him he was a traitor. That wasn't the case. They've all said or they all did, you know, in the past that they were concerned about the sound. They wanted to make sure that you could hear the music. And I'm sure, you know, I think Pete Seeger did say he didn't like what Dylan was doing. 
doing, but it wasn't this generational change. And I, the the biggest part of the myth is that so Dylan plays three songs, he plays like a Rolling Stone, Maggie's Farm, and what would eventually become It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. Then he leaves, the crowd's sort of stirring. He's convinced to go back out with an acoustic guitar because the sound had been so bad and and the the organizers of the festival wanted people to you know get their money's worth with Bob Dylan. So he goes back out acoustic and the the big myth, the big story is the Bob Dylan plays It's All Over Now, Baby Blue, and walks off stage. And there's the end of an era and the beginning of a new one. Mm-hmm. But in reality, he played it takes a lot. I'm sorry, he he played it's all over now, baby blue, second to last. So, you know, that part of the story also, right. you know, was this myth that sort of took on its own its own story. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's obviously considered one of the defining moments uh, of the 60s and really in the history of folk sla- slash rock music. I just wanted to give listeners kind of an idea. Um, I've always been in constant appreciation and wonder that this is, this is I don't mean to sound this as macabre as it will that Bob Dylan is still alive and doing this kind of stuff cuz really in my mind we have been lucky enough you know we're recording this just a couple of weeks after Prince's death and actually Prince and Dylan are the are the two one of two of the most influential people in music ever two of the most talented they both came from Minnesota of all places which I've always found very interesting and funny but um, we still have Dylan and you mentioned him. We still have McCartney. Now, McCartney, to me, is the greatest pop songwriter ever. Um, I, I'm a more McCartney than a Lennon guy. And if you just look at, by pure nature, of what McCartney did post-Beatles and when you listen to what he did within the Beatles, the, the art of crafting a pop song for one person, I think McCartney is the best ever. And I love the fact that he is still going, still touring like a... a Un- at unbelievable energy levels into his it's, 70s. It's it's unreal. Un- it is it, it is, is truly unreal that McCartney is still doing this, and it's such a gift to the world. And the same for Dylan. When I grew up and first got to, you know, when I first heard a few Dylan songs and and heard about, you know, the legend of Bob Dylan, I I it was so it was so impressionable on me. I remember a friend of mine, his father was such a huge Dylan fan, and the way that he spoke of him, it actually made me feel like he was Lennon and that, oh, so when did he die? Because I felt like he was so revered in that respect that usually that that kind of stuff is, is safe for people that have passed already, but yet he's still around. I, I'm... It's, it's such a treasure to music, the fact that he is still making music. My question to you, Chris, is, is this something of a... Like, if you had gone to, like, people that knew Dylan maybe in the 80s or, or even early 90s, maybe the late 70s or whatever, and, and if they would have said, you know, Dylan's going to, he's going to easily cruise into his 70s, would they have expected this or would they have thought maybe he would become something of a recluse or just someone that might not have been putting out stuff prodigiously or has this always been in him? Even if he was not great with the media, even if his stories were inconsistent, even if he was a, a, a reluctant cult icon, was the basic... Uh, drive of Dylan always going to be this in terms of just writing music and consistently challenging himself? Or has this been a surprise to see what he's done over the past two decades? It might have been if you had asked somebody in 1986 whether Dylan would still be doing this in 30 years later in 2016, it might have been a surprise. But when you listen to what Dylan has said over the years, even back in the 60s, you know, late 60s when Rolling Stone came out, I believe in his first Rolling Stone interview, he talked about how this is just what he does. The same way a lawyer goes and, you know, practices law, the same way a judge goes, you know, to work every day, the same way a coal miner does it. This is what he does. He is a he's a musician. So when, you know, again, 
there's so many people who question my love of Dylan and wonder why I'm wasting my money to go see him in all these various places. And they say, well, you know, why is he touring? Has he wasted his money? You know, does he does he need the cash? And the answer is no. He's been on this never ending tour for almost 30 years and he's playing, you know, minor league baseball stadiums. He's playing college arenas. Uh, I've seen him at the Patriot Center where George Mason plays probably five times. Uh, but he also plays bigger arenas like the Verizon Center. And I've seen him in Atlanta at where the Hawks play. But, uh, you know, he's doing this just in my opinion because this is what he's supposed to do. He is a musician. He's supposed to be on tour. He's supposed to be... Uh, you know, sharing his art, as he says, and he has a very interesting outlook on that. He says, whereas McCartney is clearly going out to th- to give the audience what they want, uh, you know, the old, what was it, the old Joe DiMaggio saying, or maybe it was Mickey Mantle saying, there's somebody in the crowd who's never seen Joe DiMaggio play before. Uh, I don't think Dylan has that sort of outlook. He says he is an artist who is going up and performing his art. And if the audience likes it, great. If they don't, so be it. Uh, Whereas McCartney goes out and is playing all the Beatles hits, is playing When I'm 64, is playing I Saw Her Standing There, which sounds very odd uh, to have a 70-year-old man saying she was just 17. But it works for McCartney. Uh, So I think he's still doing this because he genuinely... This is what he does. If you, you know, uh, Picasso painted up until he was in his 80s, right? I mean, I don't know. It's a great comparison, by the way, because Picasso's output is uh, like just, you know, just from, it's just amazing. Chris, you nailed it on the head. That's a fantastic analogy just because he was around for so long. And he was, he's like, he's, is it Picasso's in many ways? He's like the last really great modern cherished I guess artists in that regard, but uh, but yeah, was yeah. relentless in his work ethic and, and all the output that he had. Right, and and so so many people you know question why Dylan is still doing what he's doing when he has you know houses in Malibu and Saint Croix and all this stuff. But you know nobody would question why Pablo Picasso was still painting into his 80s, and I don't think people you know I, I, the question of why Dylan's doing the same you know is fairly obvious. He's he's a musician. As for whether he would get here, you know his 60s were certainly uh, there used to be uh, when he would come into concert. The same voice, I guess one of the you know road managers or something, would give this little spiel uh, when the if, if there was an opening band after they went off or at the beginning of the show, and they would say he would kind of give a mini biography of Dylan before he hit the stage, and he would go introducing a man who revolutionized the '60s with his folk music, and then turned in a and you know. As he's doing this, he admits in a drug-fueled haze of the 60s and 70s and sort of mocks the fact that that Dylan was, you know, sort of out there, sort of was was fueled by uh, the speed that he was on and the drinking. And Dylan has taken full ownership of this. But, you know, there are some people, and I think obviously the first person you think of is Keith Richards. Some people just seem to kind of be able to take it and don't seem to have a problem, even though they have a problem. And Dylan was that he's been asked about his drinking and people said in the eighties, particularly got really bad. Uh, Interestingly enough, Jerry Garcia told him he was drinking too much. So go figure there, go figure there. But Dylan's, you know, this is him now who knows how it actually went down, but he says, yeah, I, I just didn't have 
as many drinks after that. So, you know, who knows what to believe and what not. But he certainly is is uh, an old 75, if you will. I mean, when, when Love and Theft, which you mentioned earlier, came out, I just did the math today because to me he was so old back then. But, you know, we age and our parents age. So we, you know, sort of it, it age takes on different meaning every year. So but I think back on that, he was 60 years old when Love and Theft came out, which now to me is not that old at all. Yet at the time, he seemed ancient. So now he's 75 and, you know, he it, that seems like, you know, he's he's collecting dust. But you, know, you think about it, what Bill Raftery, we're yeah. some college basketball here. Bill Raftery, 73. Al Michaels is 71. So these guys, you know, the, the age is the age is just a number. And uh, the fact that Dylan has definitely had a rough life in terms of rough living uh, is certainly shows and certainly on the voice. But, you know, he does this because I just believe he loves it. I don't know if you uh, if you would know this off the top of your head, um, but I'm going to ask it anyway because I told you to expect a few curveballs. But if if you were to li- list in, and you know let's let's if you want to include the Wilbury guys, you can because that's kind of the obvious answer. But um, whether uh, people that Dylan has repeatedly said influenced him when he was in his teens, and then maybe contemporaries over the years, if there was a short list, you know, uh, you know, a one through nine batting order, if you want to even go to that route. Uh, of some of the most influential people on Dylan's life and music, uh, who would they be? So Dylan would say nobody uh, of his contemporaries. Really? He, uh, he has said it time and again. He'll say he has praise for McCartney. He has praise for Lennon. He loves George, obviously. Uh, you know, he toured with Tom Petty for a long time and well, says he's indebted to the dead because of this of their tour in 86, 87, which kind of focused him back on the music. But he is very much an old, old school listening to guys in the 20s, 30s and 40s. So Woody Guthrie is obviously number one. He had a song called Song to Woody. He went to New York for to see Woody Guthrie when he was on his hospital bed. At least that's the that's the story he tells. And but uh, it is a fact he actually did see Woody Guthrie in the hospital. Uh, you know, a few weeks after getting to New York. So Woody Guthrie is number one. Then uh, the old you know the old singers. There's an eight this 19th century singer Henry Thomas who Dylan repeatedly mentions. There's uh, John Hurt and like Sleepy John Estes, uh, Charlie Patton who's a famous blues guitarist. Uh, Dylan has a song on Love and Theft called High Water, parentheses for Charlie Patton. Uh, He was a big uh, Jack John, I guess Jack Johnson guy. Yeah, he he was one of the older ones. And and, uh, uh, Little Richard also and Chuck Berry. So he's looking at pre-1960s guys as his influences. And he said he's never really been influenced by the time he's in. I contend that in the 80s he was a little bit swayed by whatever was happening in the 80s and that's where the uh yeah the mtv yeah the yeah the mtv thing sort of uh i think messed him up a bit he was doing these awful videos he had a couple good songs there but he seemed to be kind of uh you know in the waiting for a friend uh, as the stones you know one of their famous 80s hits that just to me got awful uh you know i think he got caught up in in the wave of the 80s but he really has not he he has 
done different things every time someone has expected him to to keep doing the same, the same way he went electric to folk. Uh, I mean, folk to electric, electric to country, country to, you know, back to rock, rock to Christianity, Christian rock, Christian rock to pretty much crap, and then crap to this kind of older, uh, you know, wistful man who's writing about songs that maybe are about love that are maybe about America that are, you know, maybe about future love, maybe about lost love. And, and the beauty of the lyrics is you don't know. And books have been dedicated to it, not just from fans who are, you know, with these theories, I'm talking Pulitzer prize winners, Sean Malentz is a famous historian. He's a print, uh, Princeton professor, and he's written this book, Bob Dylan in America. And it's fascinating to see his insights on what each Dylan song means. So, you know, there's so much there and it all comes from pre-1960 blues. And a lot of Dylan's music shares not just, you know, kind of tonal similarities, but he takes direct riffs from the old 1930s Delta blues, the Sun Records sort of thing. And people have accused him of plagiarism. And this has been for the past 15 years, it's kind of been a topic that pops up every now and then. But to Dylan, uh, you know, I, I talk with a buddy of mine who's as much of a Dylan fan as I am. We sort of debate this about whether he is a plagiarist. I mean, he's not Jason Blair, right? He's not well, ripping off someone's... This, Zeppelin gets this too. A lot. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and with Zeppelin, it's, it's actually a little it, it's it's even more stark in a lot of ways because it's not just riffs. A lot of times it can be lyrics. I'll let you finish your thought, but I guess I'll, I'll set you up with this as well. Do you believe in Dylan's mind? It's of the ethos of that era with the Delta Blues. A lot of it was borrowing these notions and these musical phrases and building different songs around them. So it feels like in a lot of ways, the musicians of the twenties and thirties and early forties, it wasn't necessarily considered stealing as so much. It was just, you know, tossing ideas off, off of one another within that scene. And Dylan is basically bringing that into his own style of playing music. Am I way off on that? Or do you think that might be how he would justify it? It, it is how he justifies it. That's what he says when it comes up. That's that's the way it was. You you borrowed, you you played the same lick, and you kind of interpreted it your own way. And that's what he says about how you know the reason why uh, "Blowing in the Wind" is based off a chord arrangement that had been in a 1927 song, uh, you know, from the, the from the Delta uh, area. And you know that's the way he justifies it. The lyrical borrowing is not more problematic i think it's a it's further into the gray area he uh, there's a, a french poet i think timball i don't know how to pronounce his name timball uh and uh, he has used his work and sort of appropriated some of his lines into his music and when asked about it dylan says you know i've never made any yeah, he didn't try to hide the fact that he was doing this, but he said, who's heard of, of Tim Bott? You know, uh, what I'm doing is I'm, you know, bringing him to to the masses or, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who buy his albums. And that's the way he looks at it. Love and Theft, there was a, a Japanese book that sold maybe hundreds of copies. It was called Confessions of a Yakuza. And there are lots of lines in there that are some of the best lines in Love and Theft. And that to me is maybe the most troubling one because 
he doesn't list confessions of a Yakuza in his liner notes like he does some other stuff. And at first he, he didn't deny it as much as he sort of downplayed it, but somebody did a, you know, one of these studies that's easy to do now when you have computers that can, you know, match up lyrics with, uh, with text. And he did a lot uh, of the, of the Japanese book. So I'm torn on that, but I still think that that's what he believes. It's just that he is, everything is available to you because music, you know, belongs to everyone. This is probably his thinking. And I, I can go out and I can use this lick that that little Richard did because little Richard would have wanted me to have his music live on in the 2010s. Man, that's really that's really interesting. Um, critically, has Dylan's reputation from a critical element has it as it, even though he, you know he had his Nadir in the in the 80s as I said, um, but. Ha- has his reputation kind of to me it seems like it's been the same obviously i haven't been around since he was playing in the 60s and neither of you but you've done so much more reading and have a full full scope of of dylan's career um i feel like sometimes with artists as they get older um they can you know the work that they've done in the past it, it gets you know even more lauded and upon further reflection we we have a greater appreciation of certain bands uh, with Dylan, it seems like it was there from the start, and it's part of why he did not want to be considered, um, you know, this cultural icon, or this folk hero, or anything like that. But from a critical element, given what we just talked about, uh, is he still, you know, I don't want to say untouchable or anything like that, because I don't get that necessarily that impression. But in terms of being, you know, considered one of the four or five most important um, musicians to to ever come from out of this country, uh, his impact. And reputation has it been kind of going on the same going on 50, 50 years here, Chris? Pretty much. Uh, the '80s, obviously, as you've mentioned, as we as I've mentioned as well, uh, probably goes against that because the albums were inferior. They were sort of uh, they felt rushed. They felt not in attention to detail, but they felt like they were hurried and he didn't care very much. Uh, but you know, it's still what always amazes me about the '60s uh, and, and the music. You know, just the fact that Pet Sounds and Sgt. Peppers and all these things are coming out, you know, very close to each other. I mean, the release of the albums was so close and, you know, they took a couple months. I mean, I might be wrong about this, but I think like another side of Bob Dylan bringing it all back home, Highway 61, Blonde on Blonde. Uh, those all came out within a year and a half of each other. So another side of Bob Dylan, uh, you know, minus the the ironic title or whatnot was still his folky sort of music. Uh, and then he went to Blonde on Blonde and it was a year and a half. I mean, now, you know, Adele takes six years between albums and, you know, it's, it's crazy to me, the output that was coming out and the, also all the stuff he has still in the can people, you know, people talk about the Prince uh, vaults, the Dylan vaults have been emptied for the past 20 years and there's still a ton to do. So critically, he was always beloved in the 60s. But then after his motorcycle accident, after he shunned, uh, you know, didn't respond to Pet Sounds and Sergeant Peppers and Abbey Road and went country, uh, he released these albums in 1969, 70 and 71 when he was sort of a recluse. He was living in Woodstock. He wasn't performing basically at all. You know, he had one small show. He performed at the Isle of Wight. But uh, other than that, he wasn't doing much. But 
uh, he released this one album, Self Portrait, and it was in 1970. And the Rolling Stone review famously, can I curse? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, the Rolling Stone review, this is how it started. What is this shit? Really? That, that, and that's Greel Marcus, who is the, the foremost Dylan historian. Uh, and self-portrait, <laughs> uh, to be honest, it, it, was, it was shitty. It wasn't very good. But over time, people have come to appreciate it. And, you know, I think part of it is the same way that everything old you know, becomes great again. And we, we re-examine things and say, well, this, this was actually a great album, even though at the time it was considered crap. And I think with Dylan, there's, it's more than usual, A, because he has a longer output. I mean, you can't do that with the Beatles because they were around, you know, seven years, basically, basically, you know, as, as famous people. Uh, But with Dylan, I, I feel like in 1970, trying to evaluate self portrait is like, getting to chapter four of a book and writing a review. Uh, You have to take it all as a whole. And the 80s for Dylan weren't great. It was a lull in the book, let's say. But without the 80s, he doesn't get to his tremendous output since 1993. And that is when he is now pretty much critically untouchable. He released a Christmas album that's much maligned. I forgot about that. (laughs) Yeah. So random. (laughs) It's for good reason you forgot about it. It's not very good. It's it really is the definition of the bad voice kind of coming through. Because when you think of Christmas music, you know it's supposed to be poppy and bubbly and sung by people who have these you know great uh, warm voices or whatnot. And having a Dylan croak, "Do you hear what I hear?" doesn't work. There is a polka song, "Must Be Santa," that he does. It's actually pretty fun, so I would recommend that. But you know, even that gets washed away. It's hard to tell whether or not they're revering Dylan because he's Dylan and anything he does, you know, there's the old saying that Mick Jagger could, could, you know, (laughs) Mick Jagger could, could hand a piece of paper to Jan Wenner at Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone will give it five stars. Right. Uh, And I think, I think uh, Noel Gallagher said the same thing about about Radiohead. They could could fart in a cup or something like that. Yes. And they'll get nine, nine out of 10 on NME. So, you know, I don't know whether or not that's what's happening with Dylan, uh, but there's no denying that his three albums, time out of mind, 97, the 2001 Love and Theft, and then uh, Modern Times in 2004. Those were phenomenal albums. So uh, whether or not Fallen Angels and Strangers in the Night gets this critical acclaim, they have, but I think a lot of people are are a little bit kind of turned off by the change, by the fact that it sounds like a lounge act. To me, it doesn't. I think uh, if you go in thinking that he sounds like a lounge act, then that's where you're going to come out of it thinking. If you go in thinking that it's a genius reinterpreting the Great American Songbook, as I do, then you'll believe that too. Uh, But yeah, he's pretty much untouchable in terms uh, in terms of what he releases now. And now people are starting to appreciate the stuff, the self-portrait more, because he has these bootleg series where he's where they're releasing versions of these songs that weren't on the album and they're actually amazing and they're far better than the album versions. So you can kind of, you know, uh, go piece by piece and put together self portrait again. And it'd be a really great album. It's just the, the way it was produced back then and the way Dylan liked it, it was this sparse hollow sounding, uh, you know, this album, but 
there's a, he recorded a lot of versions of these songs that were very full and sounded great. So all this, it's hard because every, you know, if with everyone, we look back and we want to believe that everything they did was great. And I think for Dylan, you get there pretty much from 63, 61, when his first album came out up until 79. And then pretty much until Under the Red Sky in 93, a span of 13 years. You know, it, it wasn't good. I mean, the Dylan and the Dead album is bad. It is unlistenable. It's the one album I don't listen to. Uh, and I listen to Empire Burlesque, which is also not great, but it has its moments. The Dylan and the Dead stuff doesn't have its moments at all. And Bob Weir has said of it that basically Jerry and Bob would just go off into another room doing God knows what. And uh, and with, you know, with guitars, uh, admittedly and they would you know he uh, Garcia would teach Dylan one song Dylan would teach Garcia another song which is why the dead played a lot of Dylan songs during that period before Jerry died but uh, you know you can't defend a lot of what happened in the 80s but uh, again I think that's what makes Dylan so fascinating is the fact that he's not malleable the fact that he's not uh, you know what you wanted him to be throughout his career so the 80s were, uh, you know, a means to an end, uh, in a way. Um, before we get to the re- record ranking, um, <clears throat> can you can you explain the connection between Dylan and the band, how they even became to work together, and whether Dylan propelled the band to its success, or if the band was always going to be there because they had the stuff to begin with? Just for anyone that might you know, know the band and, and like the band, but not know a bunch about Dylan, or maybe they don't even know about the band. To me, I, the band for me, they would, they would make my personal top 25 or so. Like I really, really, really dig the band. Um, and I'm frustrated about how the band ended and it was never like, they could have really, like they really are one of the, the better North American bands ever, I feel, but the, the I'm so bothered that they did not last longer, but maybe they always were going to have a, an element of combustibility to them. But in terms of the Dylan relationship, uh, kind of share what you know, how that came to be, and the success they had propelled off of working with Dylan. Uh, so to, to answer the overarching question, even though I, I fully, I'm fully with you on the band. Uh, I love their albums. I think that Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm were just, you know, fantastic. Rick Danko, I, I think they all they were as cohesive a band as you get. They all kind of contributed in their own way, and you know, you can listen to five songs and get different singers on each and different yes. kind of you know I, melodies and stuff. That's what I love stuff. about them, yeah. without a doubt. Yes. Yeah, it's great, and. But with, I think without Dylan, they did they, they do not become the band. Uh, they, if I remember correctly, they were recommended by a, a blues singer who uh, at, at this time the band was called the Hawks and they became the backing band for Dylan when he went on his famous 65, 66 world tour, which is the famous tour where he would play acoustic set go off and come back and play electric. So the band would come or the Hawks at that point would come back on with him. And they were a very, very raw band at the time. If you listen to the, if you listen to the, I mean, almost every show is recorded and I've, I've listened to them all and it's kind of sloppy music, but it, it goes with what Dylan was trying to do. He was trying to be loud. He was trying to, 
sneer at the world. He was he was a jerk back then. I mean, if you watch Don't Look Back, uh, the DA Pennybacker um, uh, documentary, I mean, Dylan was a jerk. And I think a lot of it was the drugs. A lot yeah. of it was an act. But, you know, that was what he wanted to project himself as. But if you if there's one piece of evidence that goes against the Hawks then becoming the band uh, as great musicians in their own right, it was in 66 Dylan tried to record Blonde on Blonde with them and it just didn't work because they were not great session musicians. They could not do what Dylan wanted. They couldn't. Dylan would go in and start playing and the session musicians would have to kind of, it's like back to the future when, you know, he's like a blues riff and B guys try to try to keep up. That's what Dylan would do. I mean, and he would nail songs in a single take. I mean, visions of Johanna, which is in the top two for me of all time, Dylan songs that was knocked out in one take. Uh, That's not to say all the songs were, but he had to, he had to let the, the Hawks or, you know, whatever they were at the time, he did not have them. He had to go to Nashville from his Woodstock home he went to Nashville to record with guys down there because the Hawks were not uh, I think good enough but then after Dylan has his motorcycle accident after he moves to Woodstock uh, and by the way it was no uh, no accident that Woodstock was in Woodstock because you know it was sort of a call to get Dylan to come out and play again in addition to many other things it wasn't the only reason obviously but Dylan who wasn't playing concerts at the time uh did not like that fact so he he went away to overseas like people do when you know the Olympics comes to town he got the hell out of there but I I think the basement tapes and all that stuff that they did just kind of riffing every single day going to Big Pink going to uh there was another house that had a color name but when they did that, you can hear the band progress throughout those basement tapes. And there's literally, I mean, 500 songs that they, that are recorded. And it's interesting because Dylan and Robbie Robertson like to play up the fact that they were just kind of fooling around, but evidently they had quite sophisticated equipment in big pink and all these places that they are recording on. So that's a little bit of a a self mythology. Uh, I think that's where the band became better. And uh, that's when they kind of found their voice because the band that was playing these electric shows was nothing like the, the nuance kind of uh, Americana band that we hear, you know, big pink and, and the other albums. Okay. Interesting. Um, All right. Let's, let's rank, some Dylan records here, and this let, let's go top twelve if you want, because Dylan has thirty-seven studio outputs. Now you can include if you want to do the live stuff too, that's fine. We're we're up to forty-eight in that regard. So either it's it's top twelve is is the top third or the top fourth, whatever way you want to put this. Um, and the, you can rank them if you want to consider this the best or your favorite. Sometimes people, I did the Nirvana episode with Will Leach in season one. He said, no, my favorites are the best. So uh, whatever, <laughs> however, you, however you want to categorize that, let's, let's, let's count it down from, uh, from 12 to one and give a little bit on each record, give people an idea. And obviously as we get closer to the top five or top six, those would be the records that people, if they want to go back and listen again, if they've, if they've fallen off from Dylan or if they want to even get into it, uh, maybe give a little reason why that that might be the stuff that they would want to get into. 
All right, I'm going to start with, uh, first of all, I'm going with the Will uh, method here and, and your favorites saying, are the best. saying that my favorites are the best. Okay. I will, I, I'll, I'll get into why I didn't include one album in a, little, in a little that probably would be on most people's list. Uh, number 12 is Modern Times, which is a modern Dylan album, hence the title. Uh, it's 10 songs. It starts with this, this great little guitar lick and is this kind of bluesy song. It sounded very unlike what you heard on Love and Theft and on uh, Time Out of Mind. And it's just a very dylan song. It kind of gets back to these absurdist lyrics. He talks about, I think within the first 45 seconds, how he dreamt about Alicia Keys. And what? people asked people ask Alicia Keys, like, have you ever, has Dylan ever approached you? And she said, I have no idea. My publicist told me that he mentioned me on the album. He mentions her twice. So that's just pure Dylan. But then he has these these just great slow sort of uh, songs that just they're evocative of you know Western Pennsylvania of the Rust Belt and uh, the best I think is Nettie Moore. It's got this great uh, you know bass drum that sort of goes through the whole song and but it also has the, these quick ones like Spirit on the Water, which is uh, there's a lot of. Uh, songs that he has later that remind you of other songs and you can tell that when they were written whether it's uh, subconsciously or consciously that you know he was going for this but so spirit on the water is one of these uh, visions of johanna songs that's sort of a little longer very heavy on the words sort of sparse musically and uh yeah, so it's great uh I, you know i was expecting that to dip because it had been five years in between Love and Theft in that album. So I was thinking that that one might not be great, but when it came out, I mean, it, it was a first listen love. It, you know, it wasn't one you had to kind of get, get used to like the, the recent one. So that's number 12. Okay. Number 11. Yeah. So number 11 is John Wesley Harding and John Wesley Harding is the famous follow-up to Blonde on Blonde. And as we were talking about before, about the the distance or the time between albums. Uh, this came out like Christmas 67, and Blonde on Blonde came out right around this time, actually, in 66. In the interim, Sgt. Peppers had come out, an album Dylan called Very Indulgent. Uh, he had kind of retreated. He was a recluse. He had a motorcycle accident that no one really knew how bad it was. Uh, he saw people, uh, people kind of said he wasn't as much of a recluse as he was, but you know, he really wasn't. He was going out in Woodstock, just there wasn't social media and the internet to tell you that Bob Dylan was out shopping or, you know, playing with the band or whatnot. Uh, so everyone's waiting for this follow-up. And they're expecting it to be this wild kind of sonic adventure, uh, you know, very 60s, very psychedelic and trippy. And he releases one of the most uh, the most country album he did. And it was a complete change of course. Uh, it has, you know, just great, uh, you know, the ballad of, of uh, Frankie Lee and Judas Priest is one of my favorite songs. It also includes famously... All Along the Watchtower, a song that sounds nothing like it did when Jimi Hendrix covered it. That, In my mind, the best cover of all time. I think Dylan would say the same. I, I Dylan, would agree with you, yes. D Dylan has actually played ever since. He's played All Along the Watchtower like Hendrix did, and it sounds great when his band does. But if you listen to that song, you'll hear nothing. Uh, so Hendrix heard something different, and it was amazing. Uh, and it, you know, a little tidbit, in if you look at the John Wesley Harding cover, Go on the internet, find a big resolution. 
then flip it upside down. You can see the beetles' heads in the base of the oak tree where Dylan and some Native Americans are standing for the cover of this album. And it's very, very faint. You might not see it the first time, but it's on the lower left when it's upside down. The lower left side, you can faintly make out very blurred faces of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And, you know, it's not like they were in a beef. Oh, my I mean, gosh. I'm looking yeah. at it right now. Yeah. What's, it's, the, wait, what's the story with that? So there's a lot of different. So Dylan and the Beatles are very intertwined, right? They, um, Dylan, you know, this always sounded like a myth to me. I never believed it until I read it in various places and by people who were, uh, you know, people who you trust and people whose, uh, you know, facts you believe. Dylan did introduce the Beatles to weed. I mean, the first time they had smoked weed was with Dylan and the set in the Savoy Hotel. And then John Lennon's famously in Don't Look Back. And, you know, he and Dylan are strung out in a car. Uh, you know, Paul came over and played. And this is very, this is one of the weirder stories. Paul comes over to Dylan and it's, he, he described it, McCartney, in later years, like, you know, going to visit the king, paying homage or whatnot. I think he went to Woodstock and he brought the, the tape of Tomorrow Never Knows, which is interesting because that's a mostly a Lennon song, right? Yeah. So, uh Dylan didn't like it and Dylan was not shy in telling him he didn't like it. And then he played him the acetates of blonde on blonde and McCartney famously goes back to Lennon and says, you know, much the same way. I think Lennon went back and heard pet sounds and said, you know, we got to do something. Uh, that's how McCartney reacted. Uh, but so, and then Dylan released fourth time around, which was a, people thought was mocking Norwegian wood because they thought that uh, Lennon's Norwegian wood was, uh, you know, his attempt to sound like Dylan. So with the pictures on John and Wesley Harding, it's not like Paul walking barefoot on Abbey road. It, it was really, people didn't see it for a long time. I, I, from what I read, you know, it maybe took people a couple of years to sort of figure this out. I'm sure some people did, but again, no social media. I love you can, this Easter yeah. egg. That's, I never knew about that. That's so, so cool. So it's thought to be a message that says, I'm not going to do what the Beatles did. Here's my album. Deal with it, basically. Yeah. Okay. What's number 10? Number 10 uh, is The Free Wheel and Bob Dylan. And The Free Wheel and Bob Dylan is the, uh, in my mind, one of the great covers uh, of all I was, time. Uh, I was going to say, it's, it's probably considered a top 10 most recognizable album cover in the history of American music, I'd say. Yeah, and how many times have we seen it, uh, you know, mimicked and yes. uh, and honored in, in various things? It's he and his girlfriend, pretty much the love of his life, Susie Rotolo, walking down a street in uh, in the village. But this is the one. This is a second album, and its first album was a lot of covers uh, of of you know Woody Guthrie songs. I think maybe there was one or two originals. Don't quote me on that. But I I don't think there was much Dylan. This was all Dylan, and it starts with "Blown in the Wind." which uh, you know, is a song that Dylan later sort of, not disavows, but uh, if you'll indulge me, another Beatles uh, Dylan story. At the concert for Bangladesh, uh, Dylan, they don't know whether Dylan's going to show up. George Harrison right. called him. He sent him telegrams. He does not know up until Dylan walks in 45 minutes before he's supposed to go on if Bob's going to be there. George goes to him. He says, are you going to play Blown in the Wind? And John, and uh, Dylan looks at him, sneers, and said, are you going to play I Want to Hold Your Hand? And so that that's the way Dylan viewed Blown in the Wind for a long time. 
again, much like the, the it's all over now, baby blue Dylan ended up playing blown in the wind that night. So, you know, who knows what he was so cranky about, but, uh, you know, that song is great obviously album opener, man. just yeah, a great side one track one. Right. It, it, it's a, it's, it's a voice. It's the song of a generation, which Dylan didn't want, but it became one. And then you have a hard rain's going to fall, which uh, to me is, uh, probably the best of the early songs uh and then don't think twice it's all right also is is just tremendous okay what do we got for number nine number nine uh we're going to go with the times they are changing another early one uh this reflects followed up free willing yeah follow up free willing uh this this reflects my my biases a little bit. I, I like the later stuff better than the earlier stuff and times they are changing. I, I still think that song, when you play it and you listen to it, it's still as powerful as it's probably sounded 42 years ago. And, uh, it's it just, it's an amazing song. Uh, you know, the lyrics and, and the fact that this came from a kid who at this point was 23 years old, it, it it boggles the mind, you know. Yes. The Beatles, what I mean, uh, McCartney was 27 when the Beatles broke up. It's just crazy it to is, think about absolutely where these guys. Yeah. When you think were. about it in that terms, and when you think about like just to reference uh, Prince once more, when you think about like what Prince did with Purple Rain at, at how old he was, it is amazing that so much of the music, kind of across the board, in a lot of ways, these timeless classic songs or lyrical outputs from so many different individual artists or bands, Chris. So much of that came from people before they even freaking turned 25 years old. It's, 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 it's bonkers, and, and I've always been fascinated with why that is. That is not a coincidence. There is something about the creative process and you know a young mind that is able – now, there's been plenty of amazing – works of music that have happened from people in their late 20s, early 30s, 40s, 50s. That has also happened. But in terms of popular music, I don't think it's just simply because people are, you know, young and attractive. And I think there is just there's this weird correlation with people that are that are hungry, that are at their most emotionally vulnerable, I think. And it just on a large scale, it it, it turns out. Uh, and churns out some of the most uh, incredible music and and you just you know for dylan to have done what he was doing at that age especially now when you look back at it it's it's mind-blowing yeah i mean and the weird thing is it doesn't happen with writers or with painters you know with other creative types where you know you're writing your best stuff in your 40s and 50s perhaps uh so it, it is strange that it's basically limited to musicians i mean but uh the closer on that album is restless farewell uh which I want anyone who's listening who wants to get in Dylan, go to YouTube, type in Restless Farewell Sinatra. And in 1994, Dylan performed at Sinatra's 75th birthday celebration. It was televised by ABC. And Dylan sings Restless Farewell, a song off his second album. And it is this song. It's very macabre. It, it's, it's not directly about death. It's about a breakup. But death sort of looms over the whole song. And when I listen to it and see an older Dylan, granted at that point, he was only, you know, 43, 44. No, uh, he was in his fifties, but to listen to him sing that and to realize that he wrote that as a 23 year old boggles the mind. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing. Uh, he has a line about uh, a lost clock that's going to tick out his soul. And you hear that and you're like, how did that 22 year old come up with that? All right. So I'll stop talking on the, uh, on the times <laughs> it, they are changing. It's all good, man. What do we got for number eight? 
uh, Nashville Skyline is is up there. Uh, Nashville Skyline was the uh, follow up to uh, John Wesley Harding, and it's the one where Dylan changes his voice. It's the one where you can't, you know, you can't hear it. Uh, Lay Lady Lay is the famous song. He wrote that for Midnight Cowboy. It ends with Tonight I'll Be Staying Here With You, which is one of those songs. It's a lot of Dylan's songs are better live. That's a better live song. It kicks off most of his Rolling Thunder uh concerts in the 70s that's a great one that closes the album and then opening the album is a remake of dylan's own song from his first album it's girl from the north country with with johnny cash and it's one of the great duets in history number seven is probably going to uh surprise some people it's street legal and street legal is the album from 1978 and it is right before his uh, as some Dylan fans derisively called them, the Unholy Three, after Dylan converted to Christianity. Uh, this is the last of the 70s kind of great Dylan albums. And it starts right off the bat with Changing of the Guards, which is one of his most absurdist lyrically you know, songs. It's a lot like Desolation Row and Visions of Johanna. It does have a 70s kind of twang to it. It's definitely a little bit more dated than a lot of his stuff, uh, but that starts the album off great. It's about a tarot card reader, and you're not exactly sure who's doing what or who's saying what. Uh, it has Senor on it, uh, which is just a tremendous song that he's been playing live basically since. And the third song is another longer song that kind of harkens back to the older days of Dylan, No Time Time to think. Uh, I highly recommend Changing of the Guards and No Time to Think. These aren't songs that uh, you know a lot of people have probably heard before because this album has been mostly forgotten. Okay. All right, number six is I, I think probably the if you know if the freewheeling cover is the most famous Dylan cover, this is a second. This is bringing it all back home. Uh, and it has that kind of flare lens. It's almost like J.J. Abrams took the picture. It has the striking woman in yeah. reds uh, with, with her Virginia Slim sitting on the couch. It's actually his manager's wife, and Dylan's kind of sitting there, and there's a Life magazine, and you look at what's on the what's on the uh, the mantle, and you can sort of dissect that the same way you can dissect the Abbey Road cover, except there's more there's more to look at here. Um, and this is this is the start of uh, you know not the start of his electric period, but sort of the, how he was going to kick it off. It, it's sort of the in between the folk and the, uh, and the electric. So it starts off with the famous subterranean homesick blues, the famous video with him with the cards that again has been roundly, uh, mm -hmm. in, in modern culture. My I favorite mean, song. How in, many times yeah. exactly? Yes. Yeah. My favorite song is love minus zero, no limit, which is just, uh, you know, it, it sounds that to me is the song that could be made today and, and people would, would think it was from today. It sounds like a great pixie song almost. And, uh, and then it ends with, with two of the, two of the greats. It's all right, mom only bleeding, which is one of those songs that people said Dylan took the melody from a blues song. And then it's all over now, baby blue. They did have the foresight to close the album with that. Unlike at Newport where he did not play that last. Gotcha. All right. So now we're going Top five. Uh, okay. what, what, what would be number five, Chris Chase? What do you got? So this will be to, to people who, who know Dylan very, you know, kind of on the surface, 
this will be a surprise because it's one of the probably the three albums they can name. I have Blood on the Tracks at number five. Uh, this is my favorite Dylan record. Yeah, okay. it, it's lower than most people would have it. It's lower, and this is not like a you know Dylan fan. You know, I, I know more, so I'm gonna put the most popular thing last. <laughs> like, it's not one of those. It's just. Um, I think there's holes in this album, too many of them. Uh, I, I don't like songs like You're a Big Girl Now, You're Gonna Make Me Lonesome When You Go, If You See Her Say Hello. But it does have, I mean, three of four of the greatest Dylan songs. If you were making a list, maybe four of the top 25 are in this. It's Tangled Up and Blue Starts, which is, and this is Dylan's divorce record. This is yes. his, break, his breakup album. It's very, very raw. It's very acerbic. It's it just, it hits you. And uh, so this was from 74. This was his first great album, really, uh, you know, in probably five or six years. So the four great songs, Tangled Up and Blue, Simple Twist of Fate, Shelter from the Storm, which is just tremendous, and uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, which you I think. Would, is, oh, you wouldn't know, consider Idiot Wind? Wow. Okay. I do. You know, Idiot Wind is Idiot Wind's good. Uh, Lily Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts, I think, is Dylan's most underrated song because it's a lot like uh, this. You know what I mentioned before? It's all right, Ma, and Desolation Row, which is this great storytelling song sure. uh, with the Hanging Judge and and all these various characters that Dylan loves to create. So. Uh, and the reason that's number five is because Love and Theft, which is the 2001 album, is number four. And I could have had this maybe, you know, a little higher. But Love and Theft uh, famously came out on 9-11. Yep. Came out 9-11, along with Jay-Z's The Blueprint. And just, Ben uh, Folds' Rock in the Suburbs, my favorite <laughs> album to come out on 9-11. Yes. Uh, so uh, this is just a, a phenomenal, uh, you know, it's the follow-up to Time Out of Mind. And it starts with, it starts off a little weekly. It's actually like Blonde on Blonde in that in that manner. Tweedledee, Tweedledum is a song that starts it off the same way um, that Rainy Day Women starts off another album, a song that is my least favorite Dylan song. Which, but, uh, yeah, I mean, which is, by the way, I would expect anyone who's a hardcore Dylan fan to just, at a certain point, Rainy Day Women, just it just, you know, it is what it is, and it just kind of gets old, so I, I'm not surprised you have that opinion. It's the same way the Beatles fans don't like Come Together, which starts Abbey Road, interestingly enough. Right. Uh, so, the second song is... I think the greatest Dylan song and people would think really? you're crazy for saying the song in 2001 is the best Dylan song, but the song Mississippi is, uh, is number two. And frankly, the rest of the album could just be feedback and <laughs> it, this would make the top 10 because of Mississippi. It is this tale of regret and longing and really can only be written by a man in his sixties. Uh, it, it's, it's, you have to have, it's the most lived through Dylan song I think there is. And you listen to it and it's just, it's mournful almost, but it's also, there's also a twinkle in his eyes. He sings it, you know, it's, it's almost like he likes the memory of, of what it could have been and doesn't necessarily want to re to think of what it actually would have been like because the memory and the hope of this love, I think, is more important in this song. So it's great. And there's a lot of winking on this album. There's Moonlight, which is this kind of little ditty ballad. Po' Boy, he has a knock-knock joke in there. Uh, it, this is Dylan, I think, at his most sort of, uh, you know, sort of whimsiest. So uh, okay. it's just a great, great album, and I highly recommend it. So we had a top three or a top two right now? We're at top three. Okay, what top have we got at number three? Top three as Bruce Springsteen. I'm, a, I'm not the biggest Springsteen fan, but Springsteen said this, and it's it is the the right 
the perfect quote. Uh, it begins with a snare shot that kicks off and sounds like somebody kicked open the door to your mind. And that's the way uh, Highway 61 starts with Like a Rolling Stone, which Dylan's most famous song, probably. And for a reason, it's it is probably his best song. I mean, if I'm rating my favorite, I'm putting Mississippi. If I'm rating what the best Dylan song is, it's like a Rolling Stone or uh, visions of Johanna. I mean, it, it's, it's a perfect song and it goes into some other classics. Like it takes a lot to laugh. It takes a train to cry ballad of a thin man, which is really the meanest Dylan song yeah, there is. Great song. Uh, yeah. And there's you know, a lot of imagery in there. Just like Tom thumbs blues is great. It ends with desolation row, which is a three chord song and a little kind of guitar fills from this guy, Charlie McCoy. Uh, if you listen to the, the bootleg that just came out there, there's a lot of versions of desolation row that doesn't have that. Those little guitar fills, the song's completely different. It's so much better with them. Uh, and that's great. I am interestingly, the, the, uh, title of the album highway 61 revisited. I'm not a big fan of that song either. Uh, it's, it has a lot of biblical illusions, but it just kind of, it's almost Dylan. I said, whimsy about love and theft. It's Dylan trying to be whimsical, which doesn't really fit on this album. Uh, you know, it comes a couple songs after ballad of a thin man, so it doesn't work, but I mean, that's, that's picking, you know, at nits there. It's, uh, it's tremendous. Okay. Top nah. two. Here we Top go. Two is 1997's Time Out of Mind. Okay, so which obviously, you know, which means Blonde on Blonde is number one, right? Yeah. Let's go Let's go number two first, and we'll get into Blonde on Blonde. So uh, this is Dylan's comeback album. Uh, 97, he had, he had uh, like 1990's oh, oh Mercy, 93 Under the Red Sky were sort of returns to form. The 97, he hooks up with uh, Daniel Lenoir, who's this producer, and really wanted this kind of dark, uh, muddled sound. And that's what comes out. And this is, a, this is an album that is, it's about death and it's about... Uh, and Dylan, you know, again, it seemed like he was an old man when this was released. He was only 56, so it's strange, you know, to have this. Uh, but the death looms all over the album, and the best song on it is Not Dark Yet, which is, you know, uh, the it's the, probably the song that up until then sound the least like Dylan. He would have ones later, but up until then, it was like unlike anything you'd ever heard and it's uh it's you know it's about what it says it's not dark yet but it's getting there and he has great songs love sick which he famously was on the grammys and soy bomb came out uh and uh, cold irons bound is phenomenal make you feel my love which has now become a uh sort of a standard that that you know i think every you know it's you see it performed on american idol i think carrie underwood has sung it i think ton of people have covered it which is interesting because when you hear it the first time you don't think that's a song that's gonna become popular but it did then it ends with the 16 minute highlands which is a tremendous song so this was his return to form people think that uh, so dylan had a very uh, big uh, health scare before this album came out he had this fungal disease and it, it enlarged uh, around his heart and doctors thought he wasn't going to make it uh you know i mean there i think there was a report that he was on his deathbed in rome and you know it, it was it, it looked bad for him it looked like he was going to go and not make it to the 60s and 70s like we said uh but the album, so everyone thinks this album is because of that, that mm. death was on his mind because of this health scare. But in reality, 
he wrote this album before that. So it's just one of those, you know, another Dylan myth that has sort of self-perpetuated because it was before it was released, but all the songs were recorded before the health scare. So that's number two. And then number one, Blonde on Blonde. And frankly, you could, I guess you could say, Blood on the Tracks, somebody could have number one. But if you don't have Blonde on Blonde or Blood on the Tracks number one, then you're just fooling yourself and, and, tr- and trying trying to sound smarter than you are. Uh, it starts off with my least favorite Dylan song, as I said. But then 2 through 14, it's a double album. Um, it takes, uh, I mean, the whole thing is... It's home. It's grand slam, grand slam, grand slam. There's no time to reload. Uh, Visions of Johanna is my is num- my number one Dylan song. Uh, it's this you know, haunt- and this is in Dylan's speed years. So the lyrics are just all over the place. You can't figure out what it is. Uh, but Visions of Johanna, you know, you're not sure whose point of view it comes from. You're not sure who, uh, you know, who the lover is. You're not sure what the protagonist is doing and who's narrating the song, but the, it's just beautiful and haunting. And it just has this very simple structure that makes it, just listen. I mean, I've probably listened to this song a thousand times and it it sounds like the first time I heard it every time. And then just, I mean, going down the list, I want you is, is you know, that's probably encapsulates his thin wild mercury sound the most. It's just a three minute kind of quick, uh, you know, kind of heavy song stuck inside a mobile with the Memphis blues. Again, it's a famous one, just like a woman, his most famous ballad temporary, like Achilles is tremendous. Absolutely. Sweet Marie is one of Dylan's favorite songs that he has said. And he rarely talks about his songs, but he talked about how he was proud at how well, absolutely sweet Marie had aged. That was actually the first song I ever saw him perform at concert. And he had never performed it up until like 94, uh, which was interesting. Cause like the album yeah. comes out in 66 and he does not yeah. perform it live until 94. And that's the crazy thing, man. Like he has songs that he released in 1964 that he played in that for the first time in 2014. And I don't get crazy. it. I don't get how he's able to do that. I saw the live debut of a song called Hazel in 2004 it was on Planet Waves, which was in 74. So 30 years, and he had never performed it in front of an audience. And I always wonder, like, did he? Re- how did he remember the lyrics? I mean, does he have a photographic memory and remembers it all? I mean, he had played a show the day before, so it wasn't like they had too much time to rehearse. So stuff like that just boggles my mind how he has pretty much 400 songs that he can go to the well on and he can pull out Hazel. He can pull out going to Acapulco and all these songs that he never played and do that. But I'm getting off topic. Uh, Does he have a real quick, does he use like so many, uh, uh, artists now use a teleprompter. Does he have a teleprompter? He does not. He goes off top of his head. He goes off top of his head and something. he, he will make a mistake uh, on the longer songs. Some and sometimes it's intentional. He'll skip verses of "It's All Right, Ma." Or he doesn't play that much anymore. But back six, seven years ago, when he did, so, but sometimes he'll kind of miss miss a verse of "Shelter from the Storm" and kind of uh, you know put one line where the other line should have been. But other than that, it's flawless. Crazy. And uh, the album ends with uh, you know a song that was on the entire last side of the album, "Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands," which he later revealed was. Uh, about his wife, Sarah, but 
that's also some Dylan lore that it's it's about a lot. It's about the the woman on the cover of Free Wheel and Bob Dylan just as much, who seems to be the one that got away for him. And uh, so that song is, is as you know, the, it's called "Sad Eyed Lady of the Lowlands." So if you picture what that song sounds like, it's exactly like the title makes it sound. So uh, this is the best album. The greatest hits is a great place to start. I know a lot of people, you know, for other bands might say that, no, you should listen to an album, whatnot. The Greatest Hits is a great place to start with Dylan. But number two, you go to Blonde on Blonde because it just, everything that's great about Dylan is in this album. And the uh, the thing about Blonde on Blonde is that it was released on May 16th, 1966. And it was released, basically that day goes down in music history because for many people, you know, two of the five best records in the history of American music were released on that day. Pet Sounds by Pet the Sounds, Boys right? Yeah. was also released on May 16th, 1966. So we are actually recording this full transparency on May 12th, 2016. So I'm actually eager... I would hope there's a, there's an abundance of just 50. I see. I don't mind. Like sometimes, you know, we're in the media machine, so we understand how anniversaries work. You know, I did a whole long form piece on the George Mason thing of 10 years ago in 2006. So That's when great, by the way. Uh, thanks. And when anniversary stuff comes up, it's kind of it can be easy content material, but a lot of times it's it's warranted. And with these two albums specifically, it is. I will say this as we wrap up the podcast. I have probably listened to Blonde on Blonde. I want to say maybe seven times, Chris. It has never gotten its hooks in me. There's a few, like, just like a woman's really good. Um, I, I remember having, like, been like, okay, this is this is good, but it does not make me want to listen again, like Highway 61 and Blood on the Tracks. Like, those are records I listen to, and I want to listen to them again. And it's just a blind spot. Like, I just don't... It's, it's the same thing with, like, the Rolling Stones, by the way. I, I just don't get them. Like, I get, I get why the they're huge. Way. I get yeah. why they're huge. Don't get me wrong. I listen to the music, and I understand. But I just... I have no desire to ever listen to the Rolling Stones. They just have never clicked for me. And Blonde on Blonde has been like that for me as well. But in having done this podcast now, I'm going to make a point of it specifically because we got the 50-year anniversary to, like, really maybe listen, you know... Listen in a way that's where I'm like paying attention, but also just like letting the album hit me as naturally as it can, because you just you never know when it'll click. Have some drinks, enjoy it. <laughs> it's uh, it's phenomenal. Yeah. You uh, you should follow Chris Chase on Twitter. He uh, he's all over the map in a great way when it comes to the music stuff, but also for for sports as well. Chris, how can they follow you on Twitter? Uh, it's Fire Chris Chase. <laughs> so it, it pretty much cuts right to the core. <laughs> really, he. Uh, Chase has a has a very uh, good way of, of riling up many a sports fan with uh, with his opinions, but in a, in a genuine way, and I do very much enjoy his writing. And for anyone that might have hate listened to this because of what Chase does, you get a you get a different angle of the man and a very genuine one. <laughs> Th- hey, listen, man, listen, I really really appreciate you coming on. Um, this was all I wanted it to be. Basically, it was a, a good primer, a lot of deep dive stuff for the hardcores and and uh, fans that you know know so much about it. So I, I very much appreciate it. And uh, listen, we, there's plenty of stuff that we didn't even get to touch on. So who knows? Maybe one day down the road uh, we can get together again and even get into some more stuff. But, uh, Chris, thank you so much, man. My pleasure. I, got, I mean, there's Dylan stories out the wazoo. So anytime you want to do it again, you know I'm down. Uh, I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. So uh, <laughs> I thank you for having me on. 
I could talk about Dylan all day, as you can probably tell from how long this ran. Uh, and I appreciate it, my yeah, friend. No problem at all. I, no, I appreciate that. Anyone that uh, is a huge Dylan fan that might have stumbled upon this episode, go ahead and look around Records and Wrists in the iTunes store. You'll see I've got a variety of different kinds of shows. A lot of them are specific artist-intensive uh, lookbacks, but I've got interviews and uh, stuff on the music business as a whole. Hope you appreciate that. Give it a look. Give it a subscribe. And thank you so much. All right, we flash forward here to 2020, a little postscript on the pod, if you will, and I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you are inspired to to find some Dylan, give it a spin, even if you're not a big fan. You know, I hope these episodes, you know, if you're not a huge fan of a given artist, give you more insight, more background, bring on people who know what they're talking about, and Chris was just so well-versed in, in so many ways with, with Dylan. Um, what's interesting is, as I publish this, you know, Dylan has had another uh, moment in the in the mainstream, if you will. You know, he wrote a 17-minute song about the assassination of JFK that was released in the midst of this pandemic. And damn, do I wish Chris had a chance to uh, to listen to that, and I could have heard his thoughts about it. He's got Dylan's got another album coming out. It'll be actually be the first album um, that will have been released by Dylan since since Chris died, and that's called Rough and Rowdy Ways. That'll be released on June 19th, and it's so very Dylan in that it's reportedly 70 minutes long <laughs> but um, but I want to close out the pod with some acknowledgments uh, for those who knew and loved Chris so much you know his family and his friends and co-workers you know the people who worked with Chris at Yahoo Fox Sports USA Today you know Mark Pesavento who actually hired me most listeners don't know who that is but he is a wonderful guy and was one of the visionaries with uh sports writing and, and, and reading sports and distributing it uh, on the internet uh, for a better part of more than the past decade. Um, he hired me at, at Yahoo more than a decade ago. Wow, time flies. But anyway, I digress. Um, after Chris died in 2018, uh, Mark had said, you know, there was a time when Chris Chase was almost certainly the most read sports writer on the planet. And that's not an exaggeration because of... One, Chase's work ethic, but he worked at Yahoo at the time. And so when you had these huge events like a Super Bowl, when Chase would be the most prominently displayed writer who would write all these quick bit blog reaction things off of events, and then because of the way that Yahoo sort of had a, uh, a megaphone, if you will, to distribute its news on so many different portals and platforms, it's true. His copy was probably hitting uh, the inboxes and eyeballs and, and computer screens and phones and tablets of more people than anyone on the planet for a certain time. Like, that's an amazing thing. Um, so if any of you who knew Chris on that level came to this podcast and discovered it because of that, I hope this was able was one way for you to reconnect with him. It, it is a way of bringing him back to life, if you will. Um, and to that, I don't I don't take it lightly. And specifically to Chris's friends, you know, first and foremost, obviously his wife Allison, his daughter Anna, uh, but also his mother and father and sister and his his direct family. I I do hope this was able to uh, just bring you a little bit of joy and some comfort. And for Anna specifically, you know, I don't know if and when she'll ever listen to this, but here's an opportunity for a a daughter to get to hear her father's voice in a long form fashion for a significant period of time. And it is such a tragedy that we lost Chris for so many reasons, but no bigger one than him being robbed of the chance to see his daughter grow up. And likewise for his daughter, uh, to have him in her life as she grew up. So um, 
I, I'm really happy to be able to provide this uh, and put it out into the world. This is obviously a one-of-a-kind podcast, as I said at the start, um, because the interview subject is no longer with us. And I have regret that I, <laughs> that I wasn't on my game earlier and didn't publish it when he was still around. But in, in a way, I guess this serves as something of a silver lining of a gift and, um, and to put something out there um, that was kind of hidden. You find it, you share it, you open it up with the world. So um, I appreciate everyone that listened. Uh, rest in peace, Chris Chase. I will end um, by reciting a few lines from Mississippi, which Chase said was his favorite Dylan song. So I'll close out with this. I would play the music under it, but I don't even want to remotely chance uh, Bob Dylan's people finding this podcast and being like, yeah, here's your cease and desist. Get that thing off the internet. So I will simply just recite Dylan's lyrics here. Thank you so much for listening. Do go find some of Dylan's music for Chris. Give it a listen. We miss you, Chris. Every step of the way, we walk the line. Your days are numbered. So are mine. Time is piling up. We struggle and we scrape. We're all boxed in. Nowhere to escape. City's just a jungle. More games to play. Trapped in the heart of it, trying to get away. I was raised in the country. I've been working in the town. I've been in trouble ever since I set my suitcase down. Got nothing for you. I had nothing before. Don't even have anything for myself anymore. Sky full of fire. Pain pouring down. Nothing you can sell me. I'll see you around. <laughs>